Hello, and welcome to episode C. C- <laughs> great. <laughs> Off to a great start. Professional. Hey, I have yeah. one hand. Um, I don't know how that affects <laughs> my mouth. To speak. I don't know how that affects my mouth, but I have one hand. Um, I'm like a drummer from Def Leppard. Uh, okay. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode 92 of the Casual Try Hard Podcast. I'm Brian. And I'm James. And we're going to do a listener question and talk about card evaluations a little yeah, bit. Yeah, initially I didn't think this question had much depth to it, but uh, we got into a little bit of a discussion on Discord and figured it was worth talking about, so we're going we're gonna to tackle it. So if you want to tweet at us your show ideas or questions, you can get at us at Casual Tripod on Twitter. Yep, you can also hit us up on Facebook at Casual Tryhard MTG. You can drop us an email at show at casualtryhardmtg.com. Like I said, this came from Discord, or like you said, this came from Discord. Uh, hop in our Discord server. There should be a link in the description. There's a link on our Twitter. There's a link on our Facebook. If you, for some reason, have a hard time getting in through those links, let us know, and we'll send you a personal link. There was a lot of good discussion happening in Discord over the weekend. So if you have any questions, hop in there. Like you said, if you got any show ideas or questions you want answered, post them up. There's a whole section in there for show ideas. So I've been spending a, a little bit of time in there. So normally I see people's questions and, you know, at least comment. So I didn't get feedback on how the draft deck I I uh, helped with went. I don't know if oh, I gave yeah. good advice or bad advice. I just... I gave advice. We don't, we don't know what the uh, payout was. <laughs> the world may never know. I'm going to say it was good advice. Uh, probably. No, if it was coming from you, it was good advice. No one's told me otherwise, so it's great. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we also have a TCG player affiliate link. If you guys are looking to pick up any singles, tcg.casualtryhardmtg.com. Anything you purchase after following that link, we'll get a small sliver of to help keep the show going. And if you want to support us a little bit more directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash casual tryhard MTG. Our patrons get early access to show notes. Um, they get access to our pre-show ramblings, whatever we feel like talking about before the show happens, usually while we're setting mics up and checking audio and stuff like that. Um, I post those up on Patreon and we have a Patreon only finance room. So hop in there and post your specs, look at our specs talk about finance stuff yeah james is was filling me in on what what he says i should go buy before the show so he's got he's got plans (laughs) plans um also we kind of have some big news to talk about big news i got a email over the weekend from i'm gonna say it's a legitimate email because it makes my ego feel good we got an email saying that we ranked in the top 25 magic the gathering podcasts which, so that's exciting, right? It's very exciting. And as I yeah. told you when you sent it to me, I immediately tweeted it because I'm shameless. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, apparently we're, people are listening. So yeah. this is this is a good thing. So thank you, people. Yeah, thank you very much. Make sure you tell your friends about the show. Yeah. It's the only way we can grow. Got to get to the top 10. That's right. Coming for you, Rita Decklist. <laughs> yeah maybe not quite that big but we're coming for somebody for sure um if you guys want to check out the list it's uh blog.feedspot.com 
And I believe once you go there, you can search for Magic the Gathering podcast and we will pop up. There we go. Yeah. Yes. So thank you, Feedspot. Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah. Nice to be recognized. That's right. So this question was asked by um, Adam Logic. Logics. Yep, Logics. Yeah. And um, it was kind of like when there are similar effects in a format, mm-hmm. how do you know which one to pick? Yeah. He had a specific uh, card that he was talking about. So that's going to be the, the first thing that we go into. But uh, just to expand on the question a little bit, he was wondering when you have two of very similar cards, he wanted to know, like in your deck, how do you know to decide between the two? And then also, like if you are going to run both of them, how many of each to run? So I came up with a whole bunch of other examples than what he was talking about. And we're going to spend a little bit of time evaluating cards, I guess. This is, you know, has something to do with the series that we did, I don't know, three or four episodes ago about card evaluations and kind of basic theories behind magic, um, but also expands on it a little bit as well. Yeah. So the card that he was particularly interested in was comparing Cultivate to Reeling Regrowth. Right. So they're they're both three mana spells that go get lands, right? Like at base level. That's yes. what they do. That puts you up one land on the battlefield for three mana. Co- correct. So the difference between them is that with Cultivate, you search up two lands. One goes in your hand, one goes on the battlefield. So you are down three mana and the card cultivate. And then basically you're replacing the card cultivate that's in your hand with a basic land. And then you get an additional land on the battlefield. So you're plus one card for card advantage purposes and your plus one land drop, right? Yes. I think that's kind of the the best way to break that down. Yeah, you, you have... You have ramped yourself and you've hit your next land drop because you have that land in your hand. Right. Yep. And then with Roiling Regrowth, you pay three mana and the card Roiling Regrowth and you sacrifice a land. So you're down three mana, the card Roiling Regrowth and a land. So you're minus two cards and minus three mana. And then you search your library for two basic lands, put them both on the battlefield tapped. So... The difference between these two cards is with Cultivate, you end up plus one cards, plus one land drops. And with Roiling Regrowth, you end up plus zero cards, plus one land drops. Yeah. So what kind of decks are going to want Cultivate over Roiling Regrowth? And what kind of decks are going to want Roiling Regrowth over Cultivate? So Cultivate really fits into a ramp deck in Mm -hmm. that in ramp decks ramping like you know paying a card to make a land drop is only valuable if you're making your regular land drop on the way right right? if you don't have your fourth land and you pay Mm -hmm. three mana to put your fourth to get your fourth land out of your deck Mm -hmm. it doesn't do you any good because you're at the same place you would be if you would have just had a land to play. 
Right. Right. So cultivate is letting you make sure that you keep hitting your land drops. So mm-hmm. that the fact that you play to cultivate means that on turn four, you know you're going to be at five mana. Right. Where like reeling regrowth is more of a it it doesn't guarantee you that you're going to hit your next land drop. So that it doesn't guarantee you that you're going to ramp. Right. It also probably like lowers your chances of hitting your next land drop if it's pulling like it's yeah, pulling two lands out of your deck and not putting right. one in your hand. So like it's thinning out your deck for uh, of lands. Right. Which cultivate does the same thing, but since it's in your hand, right. you know, you're not really that percentage chance of missing one on the draw is nullified, at least for that turn. At least for that turn, yeah. yeah. So you know you're going to get from three to five. Yeah. The uh, the thing that I was thinking is the only reason you'd want to play Roiling Regrowth over Cultivate is if you were in like a aggro landfall deck where the the landfall trigger itself meant more to you than the extra card did. Yeah, exactly. Like it, if for some reason whatever effect landfall has for that one extra land and play that turn is worth a whole card, then roiling regrowth is probably going to be better for you than cultivate is. I mean, if Omnath was legal and we didn't have like fabled passage, right? You could see people playing roiling regrowth. So you could get your Mm -hmm. two landfall triggers. Yeah. You can get your four mana back. Also, like if you were in like an aggro deck where like there's a whole bunch of creatures that get bigger with landfall, um, that's probably a place where you would want some number of roiling regrowth. Right, like, like double double triggers for a Kazandu Mammoth is pretty good. Yeah, I was gonna say like if you've played any of this limited format, the the like turn one Akum Hellhound, yeah, turn two basically any nerd, mm-hmm. turn three the three one trample guide that gets plus one plus two plus two on landfall yeah right like and then you just like turn both of them sideways on turn four and then roiling regrowth like if they don't block they just literally die yeah so like those kind of things where you're trying to you know basically you're using roiling regrowth as a pump spell Mm mm-hmm because uh, most of the landfall triggers we have give you uh, make your creature bigger. Right. So, like, it's three mana plus four plus four for your mm-hmm. Kazandu Mammoth. Yep. But it also... And it ramps you a land. And it ramps you a land. But if you have any other landfall creatures, like three mana for, you know, let's say plus eight plus eight across two creatures... Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Is really good. You'd be like, oh, that's that's a great card. I want to play that. Right. So, like, Cultivate is more of a card where you're trying to get big. Mm-hmm. And Roiling Regrowth is where you're really valuing the landfall trigger. So right. they're doing two different things. Mm-hmm. And, like, that effect is probably more pronounced early in the game when, like you said, you're making your land drops every turn. Once the game goes a little bit later, I know Cultivate Sorcery Speed and Roiling Regrowth an instant, but once the game goes later and you're not necessarily making your land drops every turn anymore, they're kind of the same. Like when you Cultivate, you get the landfall trigger and then you can just play the land that you find. You know what I mean? Yeah, and Cultivate, since it puts the land in your hand, if you have any kind of like looting effect. Yeah. Right now, that land can become the thing you discard right. to your loot. 
Right. Right. So it you just can turn put, it into a real card. Yeah. So just putting a land in your hand, if you have a looting mm-hmm. effect, is going to give that card more value because it can just be. It could be anything. It could be a boat. Right. <laughs> it could be a boat. Not in this format. Not in this format. But when we go back yeah. to Kaladesh, could be a boat. Honk. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's so, later in the episode. That's later in the episode. <clears throat> but yeah, so I think you have to look at your deck and say, like, you know, cultivate is the go over the top card, and mm-hmm. like Roiling Rigoth is kind of the go underneath card. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And you have to decide, like, is my deck trying to go over the top or am I trying to mm-hmm. get underneath? Right. Because as you put it, you're down a card. Yeah. Effectively. You're you're flat on cards. You're flat on cards, as opposed to being up yeah. on cards. So you're like right. So yeah, I guess in that sense you're down a card. But you're like you're. It's a, almost like a tempo play, right? Where you're yeah. trading a card for damage. Yep, and that's actually the exact way I put it in chat. Is one is card advantage and one is tempo. Like going back to our episode a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So you're like, I'm going to I'm going to try to get eight damage in here, mm-hmm. so that. I can dead you. So yep. I'm just going to like trade a card for damage. Yep. Yeah. Effectively. Or if you have like a Morag out or whatever, that's two combats. Yeah. It's like effectively like a lightning bolt kind of thing. Just bolt your face. Yep. Like I know I could trade this for one of your cards, but I don't care. It's worth mm-hmm. this much damage to me. Right. Where cultivates like I need to hit my land drops. I need to go over the top of you. Mm-hmm. So, and now you have some other things that are similar effects. Similar but different, yeah. Do you want to go through these one by one, or you want to just rattle them off and we'll kind of talk about them as they, well, as we feel like it, or how do you we'll, want to do it? We'll this? kind of go through. We'll go one okay. by one. We can kind of group the second two together. Yeah. But there's Fertilid. Fertilid's a three-mana zero-zero creature that enters with two counters on it, and you can pay one in a green to remove a counter from it and put a land into play tapped. Like, it costs so much mana, like, the and the body's not worth enough. You know what I mean? Like, right. if you want a ramp spell, like, you're paying seven mana to put two lands onto, onto the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, you get to spread it out over a couple turns. Yeah. Like, I don't know where you would play that three, in air quotes, mana ramp spell over the other mm-hmm. ones. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's really comparable to the other two. But, I mean, there are decks that care about counters, for instance, where, you know, this might turn into four lands over the course of a game. Yeah. If you like, can put extra counters on it. Yeah, like, if you care about the counter synergy, the fact that it's a 2-2 with two counters on it, or right. a three-minute thing with two counters, like, then, yeah, and then the, the, the ability to get a land is not its main game plan. Right. You're like, this is a gray ogre, right? Is that that's the right one? No. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's a gray ogre. Yeah, it's a gray ogre, but I can make or it a like pearl unicorn. Yeah, or I can make it a a three mana three three that mm-hmm. has this like upside that maybe, you know, if I'm gonna miss a land drop, I can do this or late in the game. If it's not doesn't matter, I can just pull some lands out of my deck so I don't flood. Yeah. Kind of deal. Like if, if you have some extra mana on, on their end step or something, you can, you know, go get a land or whatever. Then we have uh, Migration Path and Vastwood Surge, which are the four mana go get two lands out of your deck and put them on the battlefield mm-hmm. tapped. And yep. they have random set specific upside. Right. So Migration Path lets you cycle it away for two mana. 
and Vestwood Surge has kicker four. And if you pay kicker, you put two plus one plus one counters on each creature you control. These two, I think you play like just the four mana get two lands on the battlefield tapped, like explosive mm-hmm. vegetables. You play that card when you're trying to go way over the top. Like this, yeah. is, this is the I have Ugin in my deck card. Yeah, if you're trying to get to like eight, nine, ten mana. I, yeah. I mean, even like the ultimatums, I might want migration path over like cultivate. Yeah, because um, it gets but, you it gets you from four to six, and then if you hit your land drop, you're on your seven. Right, and it lets yeah, you fix just, your colors as well. Yep, you're just ready to party. Now they have the set specific text on them, mm-hmm. so right. I think if you're a ramp deck, like a mm-hmm. pure ramp deck. Uh, migratory path is typically better. Yes. Because when you have your 10 lands mm-hmm. and you need to draw your Ugin and you draw that, you just pay two mana and you get another look at your Ugin. Right. It, it helps you find whatever your payoff is when you're done ramping. That's what surge is. If for some reason you are like ramping on, some, mm-hmm. but you also are trying to go wide like where you could like take advantage of the four mana, the additional, the eight mana mode where you put two counters Mm -hmm. on everything. Right. But usually those things don't go together, right? Like I'm going to go. I mean, if you had like a, if you had like a fertile Lotus Cobra deck, you would want best would surge over migration path. Yeah, you could, but just like the, I mean, I don't, I don't know that that deck exists, but yeah, usually though, like I want to put two lands on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Or I want to you know, put two additional lands on the battlefield does not mesh with. I have Going a wide. bunch of things to put counters on. Yeah, yeah. you don't want to just like pay eight mana to put two lands on the battlefield and two plus one plus one counters on a creature. Yeah, you want to put two cr- plus one plus one counters on seven creatures, right? And make it way more impactful. And those yeah. things don't go together, or you get that effect way cheaper. Mm-hmm. Right, like you, it could be like four mana and you just get two plus one plus one counters and everything mm-hmm. i'm trying to think the there's the boss reese thing that's one in the white and everything gets one counter right but it's yeah so it's basically mana. two of them yeah yeah so like you stuck them together you know two boss mm-hmm. reese solidarities and a trench coat right yeah that'd be four <laughs> mana yeah like lotus cobra is really the only thing i can think of where like if you're playing lotus cobra you might want vestwood surge because like that that deck, if you're looking to ramp, you can cast your four mana ramp spell on turn three. Like if you turn two Lotus Cobra, turn three, either Evolving Wilds or Fabled Passage, and then go get two lands, you can, you know, trigger Lotus Cobra, play another Lotus Cobra or whatever. In that deck, like later in the game, might want the plus one plus one counters as an upside instead of you know, being able to, like you said, cycle it away for your payoff. Yeah, like if you're playing a bunch of, like if you're playing a bunch of mana dorks, yeah. and you want to turn those mana dorks into threats later on, then that's mm-hmm. what surge. Yep. But if you're just playing uh, Ugins or other big things, yeah, then you just want another bite at the apple, another chance to draw your big thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's also worth noting. I think we talked about this in the Ikoria like set review that we did, but Migration Path is probably the best explosive vegetation that's been printed yet. Yeah, because its set-specific ability is the best one. Yeah. 
Yep. And like we were just talking about it, it feeds itself. Like once you don't need the migration path anymore, it it's another chance at finding your payoff. If Vastbridge Surge, if its kicker was like two and you got to get three lands. Yeah. Then maybe you're like, okay, maybe that's better. But oh, yeah. like the counters don't line up with typically what the kind of decks that these cards go into. Yep. All right. So the next one is a kind of a little bit trickier to talk about. And this is uh, Fertile Footsteps, which is the adventure of Beanstalk Giant. So Fertile Footsteps is two and a green. Search your library for a basic land, put it on the battlefield, shuffle your library. It's similar to Cultivate, where it's three mana, sorcery speed, put an extra land into play. Except instead of drawing another basic land, you're drawing a seven mana big thing. Yeah. This card is way better than I thought it was Yeah, when it was spoiled, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think we said that it's weird that they're giving you both the ramp spell and the payoff. Right. Even if the payoff is like super medium. Mm-hmm. But, you know, having your ramp spell and then being able to cast the abyss later on in the game. Right. Is pretty good. Well, I think the thing that we didn't really like touch on when we were evaluating this card in the first place is that Beanstalk Giant is kind of a ham sandwich. Like it it just exists once the dust settles. You know what I mean? Like once, you know, blows have been traded, resources have been exchanged, there's not a whole lot left going on, then Beanstalk Giant is just the best thing to do because it's an eleven eleven. Yeah, and they have to have an answer for it or they just have to like throw creatures under it or they die. Yeah. I was going to say so even though it's not doesn't have the most impressive text. Mm-hmm. Uh the fact that you get to do both. You're right. Is good is what makes the card good. Mm-hmm. Because like you wouldn't play 7 mana star star right for the number of lands you have. No, definitely not. But the fact that it's just stapled to an okay three mana ramp spell. Mm-hmm. And I say okay, and it's like secretly kind of like uh, Teferi Hero of Dominaria, where Teferi was five, but you have to untap two lands, so he kind of cost three. Right. Like this costs three, but it, the land that it gets comes into play untapped. Right. So, so it kind of costs two. So it kind of costs two if you have a way to use yeah. that mana to like. You know, you cast that and then you cast your like edge wall and innkeeper. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, okay, like I got to use that mana. So this really only cost me two mana. Yep. Again, I'm going to refer back to Lotus Cobra. This card's also pretty good with Lotus Cobra too, because because the land enters untapped. If you have a Lotus Cobra out, you got two mana back. So you can, you know, do play another Lotus Cobra or, you know, if you had another land kicking around, cast a cultivate or another beanstalk giant or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can like, you can cast stomp. You can make use of like getting the two mana. Yep. Yeah. So where, like where would you, we kind of related fertilid migration path and vest would surge back to the original two we were talking about. What do you think about beanstalk giant versus either cultivate or roiling regrowth? So in like a pure ramp deck, Right, like I think cultivate is probably better, mm-hmm. but the fact that it's hard to compare them because the fact that your ramp spell also draws you the big ham sandwich mm-hmm. that you want, like 
it puts it in a weird spot where like if you wanted let's say six of this effect maybe right. you play three cultivates and two beanstalk giants because you know you want to cast your ugin but if you have to cast beanstalk giant well okay yeah i i would say beanstalk giant like there's different levels of ramp like there's ramp decks that just want to get to five mana. There's ramp decks that want to get to six or seven mana. And there's ramp decks that want to get to 10 mana. I think Beanstalk Giant falls somewhere in between like a Cultivate and a Migration Path. Where Cultivate, you really want to get to five mana. Migration Path, you really want to get to like seven or eight mana. In Migration or uh, Beanstalk Giant, maybe you, you just care about getting to seven mana. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Beanstalk Giant... Compared to like Reeling Regrowth, Beanstalk Giant is the more pure ramp card. Right. Than yeah. Reeling Regrowth. Like Reeling Regrowth of all these is the most unique in the fact that it's the it's the aggro ramp card. Yeah, it kind of just cares about basically the card just cares about landfall triggers. It's yeah. not not as much of a ramp card as it is just triggering landfall. Yes. So And then um, we have one more that's really unique. Sad kind of robot. doesn't really Bad robot, yeah, doesn't really fit in with the rest of these cards, but a uh, solemn simulacrum is a four mana two two artifact creature. When it enters a battlefield, you search your library for a basic land, put it into play, and when it dies, you get to draw a card. So, like we've seen this effect on a creature, like in green, sometimes for three mana. Does it put it like the? They usually just put it like Wood Elves puts the card in your hand, right? Yeah, I mean, there's been versions that put it into play. There's been versions that put it in your hand. Like uh, Nissa Vestwood Seer, I think, puts it in your hand. Um, what Elves, I don't remember if it puts it in your hand or into play. Some of the older ones used to like put it Civic into play. Like Civic Wayfinder. Yeah. Like, the fact that uh, it's an artifact creature, like, the fact that the body can matter, mm -hmm. this is more of a card that you use to bridge yourself to your late game. Okay, right? I can like, see that. It gets you your land into play, right? But it, and then it's a speed bump. It's a speed bump that gives you a block, and then right. replaces itself. Mm -hmm. So like where you know migratory path, you're just tapping out and you're going from four to six, but then right. you get hit for twelve. Right. Right. This gives you a way that maybe you only you go from four to five. And then you need to have something at that five or six mana spot to help you stabilize after this like throws itself in front of something and you take six as opposed to 12. Right. It's also kind of unique because it gives different decks access to ramp. Yes. Whereas like all of the other decks that we've talked about have been base green because that's typically where your ramp is. Said robot gives that a little bit of ramp to say sure, mono black or mono red. Like big red. Yeah. Like mono black uses this kind of card because there's no, right? Like when there's a mono black deck, typically, or a, a big red deck, there's some sort of artifact ramp. Let that yep. be treasure map where mm -hmm. you like put in some work and you try to find your lands and then it flips over and gives you a burst of mana. Yep. Or in like historic mono black control style decks, play like Mindstone. Right. Because they have to get ahead on mana. Mm -hmm. And so having an artifact that just goes against you a land, yep, like you said, just allows those decks to have a dimension that they wouldn't otherwise have. Yep. I agree. 
So, so like we said, a little bit different than, or I mean, it's very different from the, you know, ramp focus cards that we were talking about, but technically is ramped and, you know, does something a little bit unique. Yeah. So next up are red cards. They're red cards. Um, these are all red cards that are basically red removal. And I picked all two mana ones so that they're all easy to compare to each other. I guess we'll just start at the beginning with Fire Prophecy. It's a one and a red for an instant. Fire Prophecy deals three damage to target creature. You may put a card from your hand on the bottom of your library if you do draw a card. So this is kind of just the, if you want to kill a creature, it's kind of the the way that you get card selection out of your removal spell. Yeah, it's... Or filtering, I should say. Yeah, it's like... Uh, I guess I really don't know. Is this better or worse than a scry? Probably better, right? Probably better. Because you're getting that card that's on top right away. Right. Like, you're turning it... Yeah. The The problem is, is, like, when you don't have a dead card, then you don't right. get to use the ability. Right? If yeah. your hand is gas, mm-hmm. and you don't want to put anything on the bottom, yeah, it's worse than a scry. But when your hand is... Eh, is better than a scry. Yeah, and it's red, so you do have to get rid of the card before you draw. Whereas, like, if this was a blue card, like, obviously it wouldn't be dealing damage to things, but you would draw and then put a card on the bottom. Yeah. This card is, like, kind of a control card and a combo card. Yeah, again, like we were talking about with, like, Sad Robot, um, this is kind of like a big red card. Yeah. Where it's not the best at what it does but it does give you something that some decks are going to be in the market for right so for combo decks you take that not a combo piece and you put it on the bottom and you hope to draw your combo piece while buying yourself like a turn Mm -hmm. or buying yourself just a reprieve from the onslaught in control right again it kills their creature and then you can take the thing that is not an answer against this deck Mm-hmm. And put it on the bottom. Yep. So it gives you a way to like sculpt your hand. Yeah. Now, something that's like a reactive control, like a Jeskai, probably isn't going to be in the market for Fire Prophecy. But I would say something more like a Grixis control or an Is It control that is more like a tap out strategy is probably going to want to make better use of this, right? Yeah. Its shortfall is that it doesn't deal damage to players. Yeah, so it doesn't you, go upstairs. You can't like kind of flip the script and be like, oh, you're at nine. Yeah. My plan is to like fire prophecy you out of the game over the course of three or four turns. Yep. Like, you, um, you lose it, it also doesn't hit planeswalkers. Yes, which. Just creatures. Yeah, which I hope that it seems like later designs or more recent designs, the last two sets, they've, they've stapled. Uh, or Planeswalker on a lot more random stuff. Yeah. Hopefully that continues to be a design trend. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, especially with the way that Planeswalkers are getting pushed. Yes. And it's an instant, which is a big deal for like yep, those, th- for those control decks. Yep, that is a big deal. I guess that's kind of a good segue into the next card, which is Royal Eruption. Uh, one in a red for a sorcery. Kicker five. Uh, Royal Eruption deals three damage to any target. If this spell was kicked, it deals five damage instead. So, so this hit anything. It can hit planeswalkers. It can hit players. It has upside of being able to scale in the late game 
but the massive downside of being sorcery speed. Yeah, and you don't realize how big of a downside that is until like you're on the play and you have two mana and no play, and then your opponent plays their two drop, and you have to spend your third turn killing it. Yeah, imagine like you were playing against mono red, and your opponent, you left two mana up and passed turn, and then your opponent casts a robber of the rich. You didn't cast a card for your turn, so you have more cards in your hand than your opponent does, and you can't do anything about their robber or the rich because your removal spell sorcery speed. Yeah. And the flexibility that you get for deal five mm-hmm. is not usually something that an aggressive deck cares about. Right. Because like you're not going to get to seven mana right. to deal five. And it's not something that control decks usually care about either because that's way too much mana. Yeah. At sorcery speed. Like, you're not going to, like, you know, your your game plan is not going to be like, well, you're at 20 and I have four of these. What could possibly yeah. go wrong? <laughs> right. Right. So it kind of is in this spot where if it was an instant, it would be great. But because it's a sorcery, it just kind of falls into that like unplayable because you lose the flexibility of, you know, being able to use your mana or make your decision on what you need to kill, right? Even not even mana efficiency, right? You lose the agency of like, what I want to kill their two drop or I should wait and see what their three drop is. Because like you'll play Mm -hmm. against someone and you'll attack them for two with your two drop. And yeah. then they'll kill your three drop at, at instant speed because yeah. they have a way to deal with your two drop that they don't like. They might have a blood chief's thirst, mm-hmm. right? So then they can be like, oh, well, I can kill your three drop and the next turn I can kill your two with my one mana spell and then still have mana up for something else. Right. So I can take that two damage. Whereas opposed to being a sorcery speed spell, you just have to kill their two drop. Right. And now and, you're like behind, you're behind on mana and like you didn't get to choose. So like I can just kill their three instead. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's basically what I was going to say is, you know, we talked about where you might want fire prophecy, Royal eruption. I don't know where it belongs because, because the sorcery speed is such a big downside and the kicker cost is so high. It kind of mitigates the upside. Yeah. There's not, it doesn't fit in an aggressive deck and it doesn't fit in a controlling deck. Yeah, like even if the kicker was like three, so this was a five mana deal five, that would be a much better card, even at sorcery speed. Yeah, like I think that would get played because it would be similar. It'd almost be similar to like Blood Chief's Ascension, right? Like that's a playable card and it kills anything at four mana, right? To black, black. Where this, if it was, you know, four and a red five a creature, five a planeswalker, five a player, then that kind of kills anything for just about, yeah. For five mana. And like then it yep. becomes like pretty close. But yeah. the combination of it being seven and being sorcery speed just kind of eliminates it from play. Yep. The next one we got is Scorching Dragonfire. Uh one and a red for an instant. Scorching Dragonfire deals three damage to target creature or planeswalker. If that creature or planeswalker would die this turn, exile it instead. So this has a lot more uses in terms of like the exile clause is really important. Well, I, I mean, when the exile is important, yes. The formats don't always need exile. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is very true. This format needs exile. Yeah. 
Yeah, this one does. So it lets you one hold up stuff at hold up mana at sorcery speed. speed. Or sorry, at instant speed. Gosh. Yep. And then gives you like the out of like on turn two you you tag their Kroxa as it gets sacrificed. Mm-hmm. And you get to exile it, so you don't have to worry about it. Right. And it hits planeswalkers. Right. It's more doesn't, doesn't hit players, but yeah, it's more of because it doesn't hit players. It's more of a mid range or control card, right. as opposed you're, to you're an never aggro. Card. Aggro your component out out with it. Yeah, like if lightning strike and scorching dragon fire were in the same format, mm-hmm. mono red would play lightning strike, right? And big red would probably play scorching dragon fire. Absolutely, because they have different goals. Like a big red deck or a control deck wants to control the board and then eventually win, mm-hmm. where an aggro deck just wants to deal twenty. Right. And this is possible. Yeah, this one doesn't help them deal twenty. Right. But you know, a mid range deck, a big red deck, wants to like when you're when their mono red opponent plays an annex, they don't want to kill it and have two creatures left over. Right, they want to kill it and it be gone. Yeah, and then not have to worry about it. Yep. So when the exile is important, important enough that it overrides the the not not dealing damage to players, like this card becomes important. Mm-hmm. And it again is, what is your deck trying to do? So we kind of talked about how it's different than Royal Eruption and where you would, you know, value the any target versus not players. But what about this versus Fire Prophecy? Like, we kind of said they both fit into, like, a mid-range or control deck? Yeah, I think that... I don't know. I guess if your if your deck has cards that are more situational, mm-hmm. like, I think Fire Prophecy is probably a little bit better. Because it value was, the card selection more. Yeah. Whereas Scorching Dragonfire, like, if you don't have other ways to deal with Planeswalkers... Yeah. Right. Like that part of the card could be way more important than the. Well, I mean, that's kind of tricky too, though, because it's just three damage. Like three damage, unless you've already dealt damage to a planeswalker, or if they've already down ticked and gotten value out of it. Like Scorching Dragonfire is not going to do anything to a planeswalker. But just having that as like an out. Yeah. As opposed to just not having that text. Yeah, that's true. I like I said, I think that like Fire Prophecy to me is a card that like I'm looking for a specific thing. Yeah. Let that be a combo card or I need to make sure I hit my land drops. Yeah. Right. Like, or another removal spell or whatever. Yeah. And like late game, you know, they play a four, three, you know, they play their bone crusher giant and being able to turn your land into maybe action and kill their bone crusher giant is really important as opposed to just exiling it. Mm-hmm. So, I think, do you value the exile? And, you know, are you a deck that's, like, got either situational cards or, like, really needs to make sure you hit all your land drops? Because mm-hmm. I think Fire Prophecy is situational cards, getting certain pieces, land drops. Yeah. And Scorching Dragon Fire is, I really need the exile and a little bit more flexibility. Yep. I'm with you. And then the last one is a thunderous rebuke Mm -hmm. which is one in a red for i'm sure i'm reading this right a sorcery there we go 
and it deals four to a creature or a planeswalker. All right, so just like Royal Eruption, Sorcery Speed's kind of a big deal, but this does four damage instead of three. Now, we saw in last standard, Lava Coil was Sorcery Speed, four damage, and that was kind of the go-to red removal spell. And it exiled. It did exile, but this hits Planeswalkers. Yes. I think that this card often finds itself in cyborgs, Mm-hmm. Uh, like kind of like Lava Whale did as well, or yeah. like has a very specific function, which is to kill four toughness things, which, you know, kind of sounds you know like duh, right? right? But if everyone was playing three toughness creatures, right, you would play Scorching Dragonfire. Or Fire Prophecy. Or Fire Prophecy. Yeah. But if there are must kill four, po- four toughness creatures, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, Omnath. Questing Beast. Questing Beast, right? Then you have to play Thunderous Rebuke. Yep. This is one that the metagame decides if this card's playable. Yeah, we've talked about like this problem before, not really for constructed play, but in limited play, where we've talked about like the breakpoint in a format where like you kind of have to t- determine which creatures are good or not good based on like the number of three toughness, four toughness, five toughness creatures in a format. And th- this kind of fits into the same thing where it, it kind of depends on what else is seeing play. Yeah. So like Lava Quail got a lot of play because uh, like in the red mirrors, you had Torbrand. Yep. And nothing else in red killed Torbrand. So right. you had to play uh, Lava Quail. I try to think what the other four tough or like way back when like Drake's. Right, mm-hmm. like you yeah, like love a coil with tag a crackling Drake. Yeah, or you know, but then if you had a three damage removal spell, you just looked at it like a dum dum, and you're like, well, I guess I'm gonna take like eighteen next turn. Right. Great, thanks, three damage uh, spell. <laughs> so, like you said, if it's a bunch of questing beasts, then mm-hmm. thunderous rebuke is the card you play. If it's a bunch of uh, rankles, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Then That's a good point then you play a bunch of instant speed three damage removal spells. Yep. And it's just what does the metagame require you to do? Yep. You know, if it's uh, Robber of the Rich format, right? Mm-hmm. Where, like, the instant speed overrides it. Like, either one kills it, right. but I really need to have the instant speed. Right. Then you play then you play the Fire Prophecies or the Scorching Dragon Fires. Yeah, and I didn't have any, uh, like, different... Or cards that were different enough to make up like a second part of this category. But what you just said kind of brings me to a good point is if it's a robber of the rich format, something like shock goes up in value. Yes. Where the one mana interaction is a lot better than maybe two mana interaction if the only thing you care about is tagging that robber of the rich on turn two. Yeah, and you trade up in mana. It's also right. like shock versus magma spray is a very right. similar thing. Like when the exile matters. Yeah. Right? Like if everyone's playing Voice of Resurgence, mm-hmm. right? And you're like, well, I can't shock it because they get a token. But I play right. Magma Spray because I know that 30% of the games I play are going to play a Voice of Resurgence or some other creature that dies into a token. Right. So I've got to play Magma Spray. Yep. Next up is 
all the black removal in the format? Uh, not all of it. It's Seems bl- like a black lot of two it. mana removal. Seems like a lot of it. Well, I mean, there's a lot of black two mana removal, and I actually forgot that one of these was in the format. <laughs> or was or wasn't? Was I forgot it was in the format? Is it black black? It is black black. That's what I. Yep. I was like, is that in the format? That's the same thing I thought. So first up is eliminate one in a black for an instant destroy target creature or planeswalker with CMC three or less. Right. It, uh, it really doesn't get much better than this, right? Yeah, I mean, it gives you the flexibility to kill uh, any creature or planeswalker. the The question is, is like, is it a format where there's a bunch of basically two and three mana things that you need to kill, right? Because you don't want to play pay two mana to kill a one mana thing. Yeah, and this doesn't. This only trades up one mana too, so you're not going to kill, you know, a Vivian with this. Yeah, you're just. It's a question of like, if it's a format that's like all Akum Hellhounds and Fervent Champions, mm-hmm. this probably isn't that great. Right. But if it's like a format of, I don't know, Kazandu Mammoths, right? Sure. Then this is a then this is a solid card. Oh yeah, yeah. Eliminates really good against the mono green decks because yeah. they're all Yorvo and Lovestruck Beast and Kazandu Mammoth and. Yeah, I was going to say Garrick's Harpinger, but he's pro-black. <laughs> yeah, that one doesn't quite work. He's hexproof from black. Right. right. Then we have Feed the Swarm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one in a black for a sorcery. You get to destroy a creature or an enchantment, and you lose life equal to its converted mana cost. So this has the opportunity to trade way up in mana. It'll kill any creature for two mana. And it has the upside of hitting enchantments, which is not something black typically does. So if, you know, say you're playing modern and your opponent plays a blood moon, this will tag a blood moon. Right. Like it's almost like a dredge card where you're like, well, this kills a ley line, but it's also a card that if I need to bring it up, need to have removal, Mm -hmm. right? It can fill the kill a a ley line slot in the sideboard and also double as destroy a creature, yeah. which assassin's trophy is kind of the card that does that. Abrupt decay. It doesn't kill a ley line though. No, it hits a blood moon though. This hit a blood moon. Yeah. But like this gives you that flexibility that you don't typically see. Yeah. And so this kind of card I think kind of goes in like two different decks in like, like I think kind of really different decks. One is it goes in like an aggressive deck Mm -hmm. where the life loss doesn't matter. Right. Where like your goal is to just get them dead as quickly as possible. So they're not going to have time to capitalize on it. It also fits pretty well into death shadow, right? It does where you're just like, Hey, yeah. uh, I need my life to go lower. Right. And I need that creature to go away, so I'm going to pay two mana and do both. Yeah. And I think that in smaller numbers, maybe like one or two, can go into like control decks where they're using their life as a resource anyway. Right. Where, you know, you play an Elder Gargaroth, and they're Mm -hmm. like, well, I can pay two mana and five life 
and kill this thing, or I can take six and they can draw a card. Mm-hmm. I think I want to do the first thing. Well, I mean, yeah. two mana and five life is pretty close to like dismember. Yeah, it's not something that like they would play four of, but as like right. a one or a two of to have like again that flexibility of this also tags an enchantment. So yeah. like your Grixis, mm-hmm. and you know, let's say there's an enchantment that's seeing a lot of play. Right. This lets you have two in your main deck to be able to tag that enchantment that you could otherwise not beat. Right. I'm glad you said Grixis because this is also because it's sorcery speed, a lot better like tap out control card as opposed to like a reactive control card. Yeah. So like and, and we talked about that, you know, back in whatever the red removal spell spells. Yeah. I think we talked about that a little bit. Yeah, where you're not trying to hold up mana and cast counters and be right. all tricksy, where you're just like each turn, you're just like, I'm going to turn all my land sideways and play like the absolute best thing I can play yep. at this uh, mana cost, or I'm going to like cast my, my sorcery speed sweeper and then go from there, or I'm just going to kill yeah. everything that you play. Or you're going to double spell. Like two mana makes it easy to double spell too. So you tap out, you you know, feed the swarm, kill one of your opponent's things, and then, you know, play a planeswalker, play a sticky thread or something. Yeah. And then we have Heartless Act. Mm-hmm. So one in a black, it's an instant. And you get to choose one. Either destroy a creature with no counters on it, or remove three counters from a creature. This is another kind of metagame call. Mm-hmm. Right? If the best deck in the format is green-white counters. Mm-hmm. He probably can't play this. I mean, it has a little bit more upside than you would think because, like, it'll still tag an early stone coil and kill it. Yeah. But, I mean, and... if, if your opponents are consistently putting plus one, plus one counters on their creatures. Right, yeah, like, it definitely gets worse. There, there becomes times where it just is dead. But you, you are right. Like, they play their, like, turn three. They're like, tap three mana, play a Stone Coil Serpent, and you're like, cool, I can just remove three counters from it. Yeah. And it dies. But, mm-hmm. you know, when they're playing, if they play a bunch of things that, you know, come in with a plus one, plus one counter. Yeah. Right. Definitely where, worse. Yeah, where now your card is kind of dead or right. dead a certain per- percentage of the time. Yeah. So, like, there are meta games where it's just a four of. Which I think, mm-hmm. like, based on what I've seen, current standard might be one of those meta games where you could play three or four of these and not be like totally embarrassed. Yeah, most of the most of the blacklists that I've seen have been on Heartless Act as like the go to removal spell. Yeah, right. Like you get kind of stuck by scavenging uses and mm-hmm. uh, stone coil serpents, and that's really it. Yeah. Right. But again, like if this was a format that. You know, every deck was playing four Stone Coil Serpents and four other creatures that got plus one plus one counters. Then this gets yeah. a lot worse. Yeah, so definitely. you have you have to look at what your meta game is. Yep. The next one is Isn't the it? one we one we didn't know was in the format. Yeah, I kind of forgot, and that like thinking about it, that's kind of crazy too, because this was the premium removal spell last time it was in standard. I do believe you told people to. Buy the old version. I did. I yes. said pick up Scar's Boils of Grasp of Darkness. It's a black black for an instant. Target creature gets minus four and minus four till end of turn. 
So when is this better than like the other alternatives? Well, we talked about the toughness break point when we were talking about red mana or red spells, red removal. Um, this kind of falls into the same camp where, you know, if, if everything you're trying to tag is, you know, an X4, then this is obviously pretty good. But Grasp of Darkness is also really good when you have a bunch of indestructible stuff running around. Yeah, so Seasoned Hollow Blade. Like, this is oh, your yeah, answer yeah. to a Seasoned Hollow Blade. Yep, I didn't think about that. You are correct. Is Grasp of Darkness. The downside is is it's black-black. Yeah. So it's, it's conditional, because it can only kill things with four toughness, mm-hmm. and your deck has to be primarily black. Right. So, like... Uh, again, I watched uh, Krim today, the Asian Avenger, play uh, Grixis, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're playing a Grixis control deck, you can't really play Grasp of Darkness? Yeah, it's tough to hit black, red, blue, and black, black. Yeah, and so that means like you have to have black, black to have your two-mana removal spell be on on turn two, and it's hard to do in a three-color deck. Right. But it's much easier to have one in the black for the three spells we talked about before. Uh, it's also awkward because of like the dual land cycle that we have right now, where you have to choose one or the other. It makes it even harder to get, you know, double of one of your three colors. Yeah. Cause you can't like realistically play like swamp and then the blue black pathway and then put it on black. Right. To make grass of darkness work because yeah. then you like draw a blue spell and then you yeah, can't then cast it. Yeah, you're stuck. So indestructible creatures and like a heavy black deck is where mm-hmm. Grasp of Darkness shines. Yep. Close to Grasp of Darkness, we have Meyer's Grasp, one in a black for an enchantment, uh, enchant creature, and enchanted creature gets neg three, neg three. This is a card, or these kind. this card in particular is really only playable if there's synergies for the enchantment. Well, I mean, it depends. Like, this card is very good in the Loris decks. But that has... There's a synergy for it being a two-mana permanent. Right, yeah. Right, so it's... It's when there's synergies that are rewarding you for playing a permanent or an enchantment that care about its other types. Yeah, like kind of these... like when we talked about um, Roiling Regrowth like only really cared when there was landfall synergies. Meyer's grasp really only matters when there's like synergies with it being a permanent. You're not going to default to this in your like blue, black rogues deck. Like this isn't no. the card you're going to, you're going to one of the other ones, but right. in your hateful Eidolon deck or your mm-hmm. Loris deck where yep. you can generate some value from it being a permanent then that's mm-hmm. or not that it's like a standard playable thing but what's the like green white like legendary from theros that said uncommon that looks like wonder woman oh um wonder woman yeah, yeah so wonder woman when wonder woman comes into play you look at the top seven and you get an aura yeah well now you need you need removal spells and you need auras this fills that role Right. right, or like if you're playing, you know, a Helion's Pilgrim mm-hmm. deck, like again, like in limited, you're like, oh, I'd much rather have a Myers Grasp than, you know, an Eliminate, 
because I can find it with my Helios Pilgrim. Yep. And a lot of times, Neg 3, Neg 3 is going to kill stuff with CMC 3 or less. Yep. So, you know, similar. It does 80% of the job, but you can you get more out of it because of the various energies. Yep. So real quick to recap before we move on to the card that is close but different, how big of a downside is like Feed the Swarm being a sorcery or Meyer's Grasp being an enchantment, you know, basically a sorcery, as opposed to eliminate Heartless Act, Grasp of Darkness that are instants for like a black two-mana removal spell? I think that being sorcery speed is a, is a pretty big downside yeah. in like the control decks. Like right. we said before, if you're reactive, but if you're like mono black control, which is just a tap out control deck mm-hmm. or like a mono black, like aggressive deck, mm-hmm. like it might not be as bad because, you know, for the most part, you're going to spend all your mana each turn. Right. And then you're going to find that turn where you need to be like, okay, I need to kill a creature and then play something else so I can get in damage mm-hmm. as opposed to like really caring about it being instant speed. Yep. And then we have the oddball, the oddball. There's one more oddball too. I didn't put it on here because it doesn't cost two mana, but we'll talk about the one that's on here first. So uh, drown in the lock is blue black for an instant choose one counter target spell with converted mana cost less than or equal to the number of cards in its controller's graveyard or destroy target creature with converted mana cost less than or equal to the number of cards in its controller's graveyard so this card is probably the most powerful out of all of them that we've talked about yeah but requires the most work it it has the lowest floor but mm-hmm. the highest ceiling for all of them, right? Like, cause its floor is blank piece of cardboard. So when you say floor and ceiling, you mean like best case scenario, worst case scenario? Yeah. The floor is the worst case scenario and it's worst case scenario right. is it does stone nothing. Right. If your opponent has no cards in their graveyard. Yeah. It's best case scenario is like counters and Ugin. Right. Or counters. Or yeah. Or counters the, the spell that was going to kill you right? or kills the creature. Like it has the most, maybe not the most flexibility because like the counter aspect is dead for non-creatures. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it just can make it so a planeswalker doesn't resolve against you. So they get no value for it yeah. is really big, but it yeah. does require the most work. Mm-hmm. So there's been some decks recently that have like that, have tried to make drown and lock good. Mm-hmm. Like right? you're talking about like the blue black rogues decks. See, but I think like blue black rogues is doing its thing and inadvertently makes like drown and lock good. Okay. But like a deck say from like throne that was maybe like, I'm going to play what is it? Ventress gargoyle. Yeah. And like, my payoff is I and and Merfolk Looter, not Merfolk Looter, yeah. gosh. Merfolk Secret, Secret Keeper. Keeper. And my payoff is going to be I'm gonna have a five four flyer uh because they have a bunch of cards in their graveyard 
and I'm going to turn on and I'm going to be able to make my drawing and the locks good. Mm-hmm. Right. Where I think the rogues decks are doing their rogue thing and milling people as like a side effect. Yeah. And then, oh, hey, drawing on the locks good. Mm-hmm. Or like the mill, well, I mean, the mill decks. Some of those rogue decks were playing. Um, well, I guess, I guess there's kind of a blurry line between rogues and mill, but some of those rogue decks were playing like Ventress Gargoyle or even Ruin Crab. Yeah. But like if you're like on Ruin Crab and like I think if you're on mill, Ruin Crab, your your A plan is mill. Yeah. A lot of the time. And then if your A plan's mill, then you play Drown on the Lock because you just right. inadvertently while doing your A plan make it good. But you can't just throw uh Drown on the Lock in a blue black mid range deck. Right? right. Like you're not gonna put it in, you know, an old standard deck of oh, what is he called? Um Knight of the Ebon Legion. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And Brazen Borrower and a Rankle. Right. Right. Like that deck doesn't play Drown in the Lock because it's not like inadvertently milling them and you're not like, oh, well, I'm gonna play a thought erasure. So that'll put a card in their in their graveyard, and it's like, well, woo. So yeah. now you can pay two mana to kill a one drop, and you had to like yeah. do work to do that. Right. But when you're just like, I'm gonna inadvertently mill you, mm-hmm. then the card gets great. Yeah. So not really comparable to the rest of the removal because you have to do work to make it work. Yeah, it's it's a it's kind of like. You can almost compare it to Meyer's Grasp, where if you have synergies that make it good, then it's the best thing for you to possibly do. Right. But if you don't have those synergies, it's not good enough. Okay. We're going to touch on Drowner and Alok again at the minute, and I'll, I'll ask my next question, but I think we'll move on to the next section before we do that. Oh, it's the blue cards. It is the blue cards. And these are all two mana blue counter spells. So first up we have Essence Scatter. Uh one in a blue for they're all instants because that's how counter spells work. <laughs> mm, uh, yes. So Essence Scatter counter target creature. Yes. What do you think about Essence Scatter? These are usually played in kind of like varying numbers, anywhere from like one to three, usually, rarely like four ofs. Normally, you don't want four, and even like if you're playing three, they're normally split between the main and the side. Yeah, but they kind of almost serve as doom blades, like pretty close to yeah. Right, like they're just in there as effectively another removal spell. Yep. Right for those times where like you're you like draw this thing and you're like, well, it lets you almost decide what removal spell to use, right? Where, like, mm-hmm. if you have an Essence Scattered in your hand, you're like, well, I can counter this, or I can let it resolve and use my Eliminate, because right. it costs three mana, and I can use this Essence Scatter to try to tag their six mana thing. Yeah, Essence Scatter also has, like, the sneaky upside of being a removal spell for things that are hard to remove. Like, if all your removal spells are black and your opponent plays a Garrick's Harbinger. Yeah. You're like, not going to remove it outside of an essence scatter. You know what I mean? Yeah, you need to hope to catch it on the way down. Yeah. Like, all of these are the conditional counter spells. 
Well, yeah, always... I mean, we don't get hard counters at two mana, so. Yeah, are but they are, like, they're always played in, like, some, like, numbers less than four, and it's really yeah. metagame dependent. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Next up is Lofty Denial. Yep. This is uh, one in a blue, again, for an instant, because that's how counter spells work. Uh, counter target spell, unless its controller pays one. If you control a creature with a flying, counter that spell unless its controller pays four instead. So this has the upside of hitting any spell, but the downside of it being what they call a soft counter, where with a soft counter, your opponent has an out. They, you know, it's not necessarily countered. There's a condition there. Yeah, there's a chance that they won't, um, that they that they will be able to pay for it, that their spell will resolve. So, so what do we think about Lofty Denial? Lofty Denial is another one of those cards that requires work. Yeah, so and, similar to either Meyer's Grasp or Drown in the Lock. Yeah, where if you're the blue-white flyers deck or you're mono-blue from like four standards ago or five standards ago or whatever, right? Where yeah. you're just going to have random flyers in your deck anyway? Yep. Right? The card is almost always a hard counter. On yeah, turn. four mana's a lot. Yeah, so like if you play, you know, a one mana flyer, like a flying man, right? right. Blue one one flyer. Yep. Right now, you effectively just have a hard counter for the first like five turns of the game. Yeah, potentially even more than that. Right, because they just because you know they're if you don't like their two drop, you can make them pay four more or their three or their four or their five. And it just keeps going. Cause you can't play around pay four more mana, right? You can play around four spike, mm-hmm. which is pay one more mana. And you can play around spell pierce sometimes, yep. which is pay two extra mana on, you know, a non-creature spell, but yep. like pay four. No, you can't play around pay four. Right. So yeah, you're playing so far behind curve that yeah. So it is effectively a hard counter until like maybe turn six or seven or eight. Yeah, or potentially even more than that. Yeah, depending on how many lands they have. Like, can you imagine? Like, your opponent has six lands and they know that anything they cast, you're just going to like tag for two mana. Yeah. Right or anything that matters. Like on turn six, if they're playing a two drop, you're just like mm-hmm. mm, okay. Yeah. But again, it has the problem of it's really good if you have 25 creatures that fly in your deck mm-hmm. and is like unplayable if you have three creatures that fly in your deck right right so there's definitely a deck building constraint that goes into this card that you know mana leak which is one mm-hmm. in a blue counter spell unless they play three yeah the deck building constraint is island Right. <laughs> where where this is island plus dudes that fly. Mm-hmm. And that um, changes the value of the card drastically. Like, even if you meet the restriction, typically this is going to go into more of a tempo deck than a control deck. Because just in order to meet the, the restriction, you're going to be doing tempo-y things. You know what I mean? The, yeah. Like, the fourth spike only matters in a tempo game. And... If you're going to meet the condition and turn it into more of a hard counter, you, you're still going to be kind of playing a tempo game, if that makes sense. Yeah, like you you have to be putting like pressure on them 
so that the fact that it's a conditional counter matters. Yeah. Right. You have to be like, you can't just be like, go ahead. Right. Because then they get to eight, nine, ten mana and they can play around your four mana. Yeah. But like if you're attacking like with a Delver right, Mm -hmm. for three in the air, they don't have the time to build up enough mana to ignore it. Right. Well, so, I mean, if you're playing Delva, you're probably wasting their lands away too. Yeah, but like, like <laughs> I would like or Brazen Borrower, right? I guess a more yeah. standard, like you know, they on on turn one you play a flyer, on turn two you like flash in a threat, or you play like uh, a Geist or whatever, right? A two-two flying guy, and yeah. then on turn three you can be like, okay, anything you cast, I counter, or I flash in a Brazen Borrower. And yeah. if they don't catch it, and then you flash in a Brazen Borrower, and now they can't ever catch back up. Right. Because you're going to play your four mana, your pay for mana thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. so we had talked in the last couple categories about like a tap out control deck versus like a reactive control deck. And like this would fit into neither category is basically what we're saying. This is more of a tempo deck than a, or a tempo card than a control card. Exactly. Like it, it doesn't fit into a hard control deck. So it's kind of like you're trying to shorten the game. Yep. Like tempo to like almost an aggressive kind of strategy. Yep. And then next up we have negate Uh, one in a blue counter target, non-creature spell. So where would we want to play Negate? Negate kind of gets played in the same spots as Essence Scatter in a way. If you well, it's played in the opposite spots of the Essence Scatter, but well, what I mean by the same <laughs> spots is is when the meta game says there's a lot of non-creature spells. Yeah, you see Negates. Negates also get played a lot in sideboards of right. mid-range decks, yep. where they're gonna play against the control deck and their removal is no good. Right. So they can swap the removal out for things that matter. Right. Things that interact with what your opponent's doing. Yeah. So you want to have access to those. And that was something that was kind of broken about the Teferi time raveler format was right. All these people were playing these big non-creature spells and no one could play negate in their sideboard. So, or disdainful stroke, mm-hmm. right? Like you just didn't have access to that because it's a fairy. So negate is usually the like, oh, I'm playing against a control deck. I need to tag their planeswalker because mm-hmm. they're going to spend their turn five and tap out. Yep. And so I've got to tag their planeswalker and then I can finish the game off. Mm-hmm. Or I've got to get their shatter the sky. Right. Right. Or if you're trying to, you know, if your opponent's not really prepared, like if you're playing against a control deck and your opponent's not really prepared to like fight a counter war, like they would be in a control versus control matchup. Sometimes you bring in negates to like catch your opponent off guard and prompt the counter battle. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where they're not expecting for you to have a counter spell and then they have to expend more resources than they thought they were going to have to. Right. Let that be like, you know, on, on their turn, Mm-hmm. So they've like they've used more mana, yep. Or you know, just at the end of your turn, they're gonna have all their turn, their, all their mana next turn. But they've you've made them use one of their answers, yep. 
Right, so you made them use their mystical dispute, so now you can slide something else through the next mm-hmm. turn. Yep. Yeah, the last one in this top category, I guess, isn't technically a two-mana counterspell, but its CMC is two. And that's uh, Thassa's Intervention is X blue blue. Choose one. Look at the top X cards of your library. Put up to two of them into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Or counter-target spell unless it's... Cont- Controller pays twice X. So it's kind of a three mana. What was that card from guilds? One in the blue, pay two. Counter spell unless they pay two. I don't remember. It's like a three mana version of that, or it's a way to dig for cards. Yeah, or, you know, if you got extra mana laying around, it can be more than that. Yeah. But so it's a card that, like, can be a hard counter late in the game. If you yeah. just have enough mana and they like paying double X usually means you have enough mana, but also right. it kind of fills the like glimmer of genius chemistry's insight role of four mana draw to. Yeah. And if you have a lot more mana, it's like dig through time. Look at the yep. top eight cards, pick two. Yep. So again, flexibility here is key. Mm-hmm. And are you going to be a deck that has a bunch of mana? Yeah, this is definitely going to be more of a control card than a tempo card. And is probably going to fit a little bit better into the reactive control decks instead of the tap out control decks. Because that's when the flexibility matters. Like if your opponent passes the turn, they didn't do anything. You can, you know, pay four blue blue and, you know, pick the best two out of the top four of your deck instead of, you know, countering the spell that you would have done. Yeah. Also, like, it does again kind of fill a role in, like, a combo control deck Mm -hmm. where it can just be, okay, I'm gonna let that resolve because if in my top four cards I have my combo piece, I win the game or I get such a huge advantage it doesn't matter anymore. Right. Right, which, you know, the other counter spells don't give you that option. Correct. So, like, having flexibility in your counter spells is important for the times that they're dead. It's mm-hmm. kind of like uh, Supreme Will, if you played uh, Amonkhet Remastered. Oh, yeah. Right? It's two and a blue counter target spell, and let's say pay four or three. Yeah, something like that. Three or four. And then it's like, look at your top four, put one in your hand. Yep. So it's, you know, half counter spell when you need it to be counter spell. And mm-hmm. then. It's also half like card draw, like, oh, I drew this on turn twelve. Yeah. They're always gonna be able to something else. Yeah, they're always gonna be able to pay three. I need to find my essence scatter to counter their creature because yep. they have three mana up. So let me dig for it. Yep. So those cards are important. You know, they might mm-hmm. not be four ofs. Right. But they're, you know, the two of in your deck that like you can get value early or value late if you have yeah. enough mana. I don't necessarily know if any of these like conditional style counter spells are four ofs. No, uh, I think Thassa's intervention in the Wilderness Reclamation decks. I think that I think it was like a four of in that because they just had so much mana. Yeah, that's kind of a different story. Yeah, but they could just dig for stuff. But again, that kind of right. fits in the like combo side right. of things where 
like they just needed to find wilderness reclamation and i'm like on turn four they were willing to just go like reclamation or i didn't hit my reclamation end of your turn i don't have to counter that i'm gonna look for my reclamation yep because if i get that i know whatever you just did doesn't matter yeah or if they're digging for an explosion or whatever yeah exactly yep and then like when we were talking about the black removal spells i told you we were going to get back to drown in the lock well drown in the lock is also a two-mana counter spell so how do we think drowning in the lock compares to you know some of these conditional ones that we were talking about it has the same floor as yep. a lot of them, which is they do nothing, right? right. Like when you have an essence scatter and your opponent plays their Ashiok, right. their five mana Ashiok, you're like, oh, well, this did nothing, right? And Drown on the Lock is the same way, mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, I, they had four cards in their graveyard. Oops, I guess this card doesn't do anything against this Ashiok, right? But again, the fact that when it's on, it's better than all of them. Oh, yeah. And the fact that counterspells are only good when things are on the way down. Right. Right. The fact that this is good when it's on the way down. And can after be, it's stuck. Yeah. Can be good. Right. Right. But cast or once it's resolved makes it a better draw like later in the game. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, you know, if you've played control, you played against a control player, right? When you know, their deck is removal and counter spells and you've stuck a threat. So, you mm-hmm. know, they don't have a count. So, you know, they don't have a counter spell. Yeah. And then they draw for their turn and they pass and you're like, Oh, yeah. they didn't have a counter spell and they don't have removal or they, <laughs> and, and it's cause they drew the counter spell a turn late. Yeah. And you're just like, Oh, I guess I just get to like run away now. Right. Right. And drown of the lock. It's like, Oh, you draw it. You then just are like, okay, I'll kill your thing. As long as, mm-hmm it's on right so again Um, like it just requires work yeah it also like we were talking about with lofty denial and thassa's they're both kind of quasi like soft counters drown in the lock is never a soft counter. like as long as you've met its condition it's a hard counter spell yeah so it's just making sure that it's on as well yeah it's just making sure that it's on it's doing that work on the front end yep on that level it's like lofty denial it yeah. has a deck building constraint, mm-hmm. right? If your deck can't put cards in your opponent's library, you can't play Drown on the Lock. So, like, I, I'm playing, like, you know, blue, black, or not playing. I'm putting together blue, black, uh, oops, all spells <laughs> for Pioneer. Yeah. And Drown on the Lock's not a card you can really put in that deck. Right. Because you're not actively putting cards in your opponent's graveyard. Right? No. Like, a thought sees is whatever. Right, it's good, but like, oh, I put one card in their graveyard. Now my two mana thing might kill a one drop. Yeah. Isn't good enough right. if you're not actively putting cards in their in their graveyard. Mm-hmm. And that's like, no, I mean, that's a little bit different as you go back in formats too, though. Like, if you have fetches in the format, drawing the locks a lot better than it is, you know, with no fetches in the format. Yeah, like it's it's like Tarmogoyf, right? Tarmogoyf yeah. is unplayable in standard, more than likely. Right. But then when you like are like fetch thought sees you now yeah. they have they have two cards in their graveyard yep. from they fetched and then you thought sees them. Now your Tom Rogoyf is, you know, a two three. It's right. like, OK, that's not embarrassing. And then it gets much bigger. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing here. Like if they're going to put cards in their graveyard for you. Right. But still like, you know, even like Sam was it Sam Black? 
I guess a year ago was playing like Saltai and Modern, and mm-hmm. but he played like one drown in the lock. Yeah, because you know it wasn't always consistently on. Right, right, and that's why like Rogues is a good cart is a good deck for this because right Thief Guild Enforcer just puts two cards in their graveyard. Like the card's right. fine. But, like, you're not playing it just because it puts two cards in their graveyard. You might not care. You're playing right. it because it can become a 3-2 uh, mm-hmm. with Death Touch. Yeah, yeah. it's a removal spell or it's a clock or... Yeah, as a, it's it's your Delver that you did right. a little bit more work for or a different kind of work for. Right. But it just, it enables your, it enables the Drown on the Lock. But you mm-hmm. don't want to play, right, you wouldn't want to play... Merfolk Secret Keeper, which might not do enough, right? Yeah, to I mean, that enable card just doesn't do anything. Yeah, to enable Drown in the Lock. Yeah. Hey, no, I, I played Mill in Standard for like two days, and we were on Ruin Crabs and Merfolk Secret Keepers. We went hard. <laughs> it did something once or twice. I milled. I met out a Yorion player. Thank you very much. Oh, congratulations! Yeah, then I got clowned by a bunch of other people, but I got that eighty. I got that eighty <laughs> card deck once. There you go. Uh, yeah, so it's just like the cards that require work mm-hmm. are all just like when you've met their condition, they're great. Yeah. And if there's a card that requires work and you meet their condition and you don't go like, oh, my God, this is great. Don't play it. Right. Right. You should be like, oh, this is amazing now that I've met the condition. And yeah. if you're like, this is just like, eh, you probably shouldn't. Mm-hmm. All right, so th- this uh, next category here I was kind of stretching for. I was trying to find a category for each color so that, you know, it'd be easy for people to, you know, think about something in whatever deck they were playing. I couldn't really come up with a great idea for white, so I picked Neither can Wizards. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem in the joke, right? Yes. So I picked two mana white protection spells or white protection spells. So first up, we have Feet of Resistance. It's one and a white for an instant. Put a plus one, plus one counter on a creature you control, and it gains protection from the color of your choice till end of turn. Are there any decks where we might want to play Feet of Resistance? So, like all the protection spells. I mean, if you just yeah. wanted to like do protection spells instead of like two mana, right? Like, yeah, like you can lump Feet of Resistance. The next one. Yeah, uh, Sigury Shelter, and then like God's Willing, even though it's one mana, they kind of. I don't think that's legal right now, is it? It used to be. It might not be now. Yeah, I think it rotated out. That's why I didn't have it on the list. But all of those together are like cards that you use to play, like a lot of times to play Protect the Queen with. Yeah, you play your thing that matters, or Karametra's Blessing. There you go. Yeah. Okay. That's that's the one that's. Yeah. That's in in now, but right. If it's an enchantment or enchanted, it gets indestructible. It gets or indestructible, yeah, and plus yeah. two plus two. It yeah. gets indestructible and hexproof if yeah. it's enchanted or or an enchantment creature. But right, they're all doing the same thing, which is, mm-hmm. I don't want this thing to go away. Yeah, like was it last week we were talking about flying hydras? Yes, like that style deck, right? Yeah, where you're like trying to put like stick one threat, hopefully it starts out evasive or you make it evasive. Yep. And then you just ride it. And yep. you need to just make sure that it doesn't die. Mm-hmm. And 
feed of resistance and uh, Citri Shelter are all are basically no touch. Right. And you just need something that no touch. And yeah, well, I mean, they're not just no touch. Like they also like, prevent let you blocking get in. in some instances. Yeah. But you want the protection spells a lot of times like they can force through damage. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times they're just there to to protect your creature. And so right. like feet of res- like I don't know how much the counter matters on feet of resistance. It does. Yeah. Like it's not zero. Right. But if you were like if you like came to my house and ripped up all my feet of resistances and I had to yeah. play Sejuri Shelter. Yeah. Like I don't think my decks would be that much worse. Yeah, probably not. Right. I mean, there's an argument that they'd be better because Sejuri Shelter is also a land. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, they might be they'd be you're getting something different. Yeah. But like the reason you're playing the card is because it's effectively no touch. Right. Now, if you were playing Conclave Mentor, mm-hmm. right? I want feet of resistance. Like, right. if I'm gonna play six of these effects and right. I have Conclave Mentor. I'm playing four feet of resistances into Sejiri Shelter. Right. But if I'm playing mono white auras, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe I want, maybe I only want to play 18 actual lands. Yeah. So then I play four Sejiri Shelter. Sejiri Shelter. Yeah. And then two feet of resistance. I keep wanting to call it Sejiri Steps so bad. (laughs) I know you do. So bad. Um, I mean, it's close to Sejiri Step. It is very close. Yeah. It's a land. It gives protection. It's just all right there for me. (laughs) So, like, you know, if you're trying to shave lands, you probably play the the shelter. Yep. If you're trying to, like, maximize your plus one, plus one counter synergies, Mm -hmm. you play Feet of Resistance. But, I Mm -hmm. mean... I think that if we just had shelter, right, which is one in the white, is it one in the white protection scry or draw a card? It's a scry, right? Or is it I think it's scry. Right. But like, you know, you would play that, you know, and it would give you 95% of what feet of resistance gives you or 99% yeah. of what feet of resistance gives you in the decks that you want feet of resistance. Right. Right, because it's just like you want to, you know, protect your creature from spot removal. Mm-hmm. Now your other one here, fight is one, or yeah. again, Karametra's blessing with the indestructible right. part. Right, so fight is one is a white choose one or both. Yeah, a human gets plus one plus one in indestructible, or a non-human gets plus one plus one in indestructible, or both, or both of them happen. Yeah, so like indestructible is good if you're playing it someone who's playing a bunch of wraths yeah that's why i included this because i wanted to talk specifically against wraths yeah because the protection from feet of resistance and sajiri shelter doesn't stop wraths yes it's it stops target removal right and then the indestructible stops like your shadow of the sky type effects. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times you're going to go into, right. You maybe have a split of maybe what six of these protection effects total. 
mm-hmm. and maybe you do like four feet and two fight as ones because you want to have the indestructible. Right. And then you have two more fight as ones in your sideboard because you you're like swap out and change your ratio. Yeah. Like, Oh, Hey, I know that there's, there's a control deck that plays a bunch of shatter the skies. Mm-hmm. So I need to, I, the way they're going to deal with my like suited up guy is not with a banishing light. They're right. going to do it with a shadow of the sky. Yep. So I need to have more ways to counter shadow of the sky, or you have like a three, three split in your main, right? And you're yeah. like, you know, but those feel bad when you're like, you know, when you're, when you're holding your fight as one and they play the banishing light. Yeah. Or you're holding your feet of resistance and they play their shadow of the sky. And you're like, mm-hmm. Oh, I had the wrong one. Which yeah. is why like Karametra's blessing is so good. Right. Cause it gives, you know, normally you put some pretty fancy pants on your queen. Right? Mm-hmm. So those fancy enchantment pants make it so Karametra's blessing give you hexproof yeah, and indestructible. For you. Yeah. So it does like it's doing both things. Yeah. Where what like, you're already doing turns it on. Yeah. But it's also it's never you don't have that awkward situation where you're like, oh, it's on and they played a banishing light, it doesn't work, right, right? Or it's on and they play a shadow of the sky, it still works. But mm-hmm. you know if you play your your thing and then it doesn't have pants on it, then you're like, oh, now this does nothing that I want to do. Yeah. Right. It no longer protects my creature. Right. So, right. So like the protection spells are more for when there's spot removal Mm -hmm. and the indestructible stuffs for more when there's sweepers. Okay. And then being able to like kind of tune it to what you're playing against matters. Right. The next topic that I have is kind of generic. I picked red green just because it was easy to find you know, one of a bunch of different types for red green, but these are just lands lands go in every deck. So again, these are all red green, but don't feel like, you know, this applies to, you know, whenever you're choosing lands for a mana base, we have Craig count crown pathway, which is the red green pathway land lets you choose when you enters the battlefield. We have rugged highlands, which enters the battlefield tapped. And when it enters, you gain a life, taps for a red or a green. We have Temple of Abandon, which enters the battlefield tapped. When it enters the battlefield, scry one. You can tap for a red or a green. And then we have Ketria Triome, which enters the battlefield tapped, taps for a red, a green, or a blue. Um, Has basic land types and has cycling three. I I mean, obviously, they're all sea play in different places, but where, like, where would you play one over another one? You want to start with, like, Crag Crown Pathway? Where sure. would we play a Pathway Land? And why is it different from, like, a Temple of Abandon or a Rugged Highlands? The biggest thing is the Pathway Lands go into more, can support more aggressive decks because they come into play untapped. Right. What you get from that is you lose the ability to get both colors later in the game. Mm-hmm. Right, so... You would really prefer 
to play the pathway lands in a deck that is uh, predominantly one color Mm -hmm. and maybe you have a splash or like you're not uh, don't have as as stringent color requirements for the other color so that way like if you're base red with a little bit of green right you feel confident in playing the red side because you know you're going to draw on turn one so you can play your fervent champion right right and then because you feel confident you can get one forest to play your green three drop let's say mm-hmm. or you can play you're like oh i have two mountains in my hand already i can play the green side and cast my uh whatever love struck beast uh, adventure is yeah and get my one one yeah and make a one one the adventure is make a one one <laughs> then you know you're going to have your other colors rolled up later on. Yeah. Where it comes hard, and this happened in the uh, grand finals, was when you're playing, like, Gruul, and you've got the, um, what's his name? The Kazandu Mammoth, one green green. You have mm-hmm. Ember Cleave, that's red, yeah, red red. Red red. Right? And you have, you know, like, double red and double green requirements. Like, which side do you play? Yeah. Because you... Because right, you can guess wrong. Yeah. Or like if you're a, say you're a mono red deck, but you want to play Cinder Vines, mm-hmm. which I guess isn't in this format, but you want to play like... A, yeah. You want to play a green sideboard card. You want to play right. Wilt. Yeah. Right? These cards are good for that because they can be your red source when you don't have the Wilt in your hand. Or, or in your can, deck even. Yeah. And then they can be your green source when you need them to be for your sideboard card. Right. Right. So like mono red uh, in modern used to play stomping grounds so they could play destructive mm-hmm. revelry. Right. And so because it was just game one, it was just a red source. You had no green cards in your deck. Right. Game two, it could be your green source when you needed it to be. Mm-hmm. So these support like, more aggressive decks than the than like a Temple of Abandon, which comes into play tapped. Yeah, so what kind of decks are going to want a Temple of Abandon over a Crag Crown Pathway? Usually slightly bigger decks. Yeah, so like a mid-range, like in this case, red-green, like a Gruul mid-range. Or... Yeah, the thing is, is a lot of times these aren't an either-or. Yeah, you're playing both. Yeah, um, but I mean that's kind of an interesting question too, though. Is how do you know what the split is, or do you just play four of each? I think because of how the mana is currently in standard, you play like four of each. Yeah, but because these are the two best fixing lands for those colors, mm-hmm. right? Um, this... Well, I mean, do you think that Temple of Abandon's better than Ketria Triumph? Um probably yeah. I said that with a lot of conviction right this well I, I mean the scry matters just to say the scry has value yeah right like the scry lets you usually play slightly more lands mm-hmm. because it lets you scry lands to the bottom yeah to get to more spells so you hit your land drops because you might play 25 lands or 26 lands and yeah. lets you scry those extra lands to the bottom which is counterintuitive. A lot of people think like, oh, I will play less lands and I'll scry non-lands to the bottom. Yeah. But you're probably better off scrying your lands to the bottom. 
I mean, Ketri Atrium kind of does the same thing, though. Where yeah, but if you're... You play more lands because then you can cycle them away later. Yeah, but, like, the fact that it costs three yeah. to cycle. And I think, like, it's more important to, like, make sure that you hit your third land drop with your temple. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you know, turn one, if you have yeah, two lands, true. you can scry that non-land to the bottom to make sure that you can go two drop and then hit your third land as opposed to on like, you know, it is way better on turn eight that if you draw your triumph that you can pay three and maybe draw some action, Mm -hmm. but turn it into a questing beast instead of a scry. Yeah. Instead of a scry, but you're going to lose less games by drawing like a land on turn eight than you are by like missing your third land drop or, you know, drawing your fifth land on turn three. Right. Right. Like you keep a three land hand and then you play temple and you scry land to the bottom because you need a three drop. Like that's usually more impactful later on than, than drawing that like extra land later on in the game. Mm -hmm. And then there are lists that run these gain life lands. So let's talk about, very briefly, because there aren't many of them, but let's talk about when it's okay to run these gain life lands. When your mana is trash. Exactly. That is really the only reason. Like, small standards typically don't have two full sets of duels, so that's usually when you see these gain life lands run. So, like, or, blue-black blue right uh, now runs yeah. uh, runs Dismal Backwater? Yeah, I why is that? Because they... They just need the, they need, they have a lot of color requirements, I do believe. But, right. I mean, you have Pathway and a Temple in blue-black. The deck needs more than... I am just reporting what I what I have seen watching games. Uh, okay. Uh, same with, like, uh, Rakdos. Like, Rakdos only has a Temple right now. I don't yeah, think it, it has a pathway. a pathway. So, right, you're playing, you know, you've got to have red, red, black, black to escape yeah. your Kroxa. Yep. Right. You can't just play like four lands and like four dual lands and 10 mountains and 10 swamps. Like yeah. that's not going to get the job done. You're going to have yeah, too many games where you don't... like rankle and shatter skull, whatever smashing. smashing. Yeah. Like you're not going to have the ability to cast those spells if you don't have yeah. eight dual lands. So like right. gruel, like gruel the mana is fine, but not mm-hmm. great. Yeah, and so like you could see gruel if the if you're like I want to get to sixteen sources of red and sixteen sources of green or eighteen and yeah. eighteen, right? You're like, well, I have to take out a forest and a mountain and put in two of the gain life lands. Yeah, to get enough sources for me to think I'm going to cast all my spells. Mm-hmm. So it's usually if you've decided that you need a certain number of sources in your deck, yeah. that then you go, okay, I need to play one or two of these to get to that number. Just because they're left, not necessarily because the life gain matters, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess like if there's like a, like a, you know, if we get to the point where there's enough black, white life gain cards from limited <laughs> that there's a deck then maybe, you know, the the black white life gain card the matters. Scoured be- Barons. Scoured Barons, yeah. 
matters because you because it triggers four things. Yeah. You're like, oh, this is worth Whenever it. Whenever it triggers like, is worth more than it coming into play tapped. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm going to get, like, later in the game, this is going to, like, deal my opponent, you know, three damage because of all the other things I have going on. And I'm going to yeah. get, you know, two plus one plus one counters and blah, 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 blah. And then, like, yeah. that matters. But mm-hmm. then there are going to be the times where, like, you need to cash your three drop and you <laughs> gain one life instead. And you're like, oh, I don't think yeah. this is good enough. All right, so the uh, the next three are also mana fixing, but different. And I figure we talk about the first two first, and then leave the last one for last. The first two are Fabled Passage and Evolving Wilds. They both come into play untapped. You, both of them you sacrifice and go get a basic land. Um, Fabled Passage has the upside of if you have four or more lands, the land's untapped, whereas Evolving Wilds, um, it's always tapped. Obviously, they're different, and Fabled Passage is just kind of strictly better evolving wilds. But yes. when when do you want Fabled Passage as opposed to... Like, when do you play your first Fabled Passage over your first, like, Ketria Triome or Rugged Highlands? I was going to say always, but it does require you to play a certain number of basics, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to have... If you have four Fabled Passages, you probably need to have six to seven fetchable lands minimum probably yep so right that is going to require you to play basics mm-hmm. which you know if the fixing's really really good right maybe you don't want to play that many basics right right uh we're not in that situation now like fabled passage is just like extra sources of your colors so you should definitely play them right the value of something like Fable Passage and Evolving Wilds also goes way up when you're stretching your mana base real thin. Like if you're playing three colors or four colors and you are not don't necessarily care about playing on curve because your spells are just really important, it's important that you have the mana to cast them. Like if your color requirements are really high, um, then the value of like Fable Passage and Evolving Wilds goes up. Like there's yeah. been times where Evolving Wilds was standard playable. I mean, it top aided the grand finals. Yeah. Yeah. So Yeah, but I mean that cared more about the land drops mattering than like, Yeah, well I mean that's that's another thing, right? Is you you play your your fifth and sixth evolving wilds mm-hmm. when you care about hitting when you care about landfall triggers. Right. Right? Like I guess, it was, yes. I guess it was in more than two because some of the Omnath decks were playing Evolving Wilds to get their Omnath yeah. triggers. Yep. So, like, it matters for Landfall. It matters for, like, again, if you're like, I need to have 18 sources. Yeah. And you can't get to 18 sources with the dual lands. And you're like, I would rather play this Evolving Wilds than play the, the gain land. Mm-hmm then like that's kind of where you can make that decision as well. It's when you're like, I'm short sources. Yep. Makes sense to me. Yes. So the last one is kind of unplayable. I was going to say never. Right. It, it is still a land that fixes your mana. And there's usually one of this effect in standard. So we are going to talk about it. And that's unknown shores is just a land that taps for a colorless and you can pay one and tap it to add a mana of any color. You play it 
when your historic uh, brawl commander is uh, Ugin, and, <laughs> and you you're trying, colorless lands. and you only want colorless lands. Now, I think I've said this before. You can, if you have Ugin, you can pick one type of basic, yeah, and play it. But if you are a purist, you will play all of the taps for colorless lands, even if they do absolutely nothing in your deck. <laughs> That's where I am. Am I playing the uh, the land that you can put a charge counter on so you can like kick it for for kicker spells? <laughs> I am. I have one kicker spell on my deck. Throne of Malakir. Throne of Malakir, so I can kick the 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 mana rock that makes two copies of the mana rock. <laughs> yes, that is that is what we have. Again, I've said that you shouldn't play it unlimited, and I got some pushback. But like adding one to all of your spells, mm-hmm. right? Like a five mana four four flyer is fine. Yeah. A six mana four four flyer is not very good. Right. And this is basically, even if your opponent's not playing blue, it's making you play around four spike for the rest of the game, right? Yeah, you're just always playing a turn behind if you're using it for color fixing. Right. Which, why wouldn't you be if it's in your deck? So, these kind of lands are, like, not constructed playable. Mm -hmm. And so you should just avoid them. Unless, let's say, you know, again some like colorless deck emerges and you want to play forsaken monument right now there's a reason to play a land that taps for colorless that's true but because it taps for extra colorless yeah but you're not using it to fix your mana at that point you're just like i need colorless lands because i have this colorless lands payoff yep but i don't foresee that deck existing yeah probably not so more than likely, like you just shouldn't be playing Unknown Shores. Yep. So I think that's everything with the lands. The only thing we kind of skipped over was the basic land types on Ketria Triome. Again, that's going to be like a lot of the other categories where like, if your deck cares about that, you kind of know your deck cares about that, and you're going to value it a little bit higher. Yeah, like if you're trying to like sneak a couple castles in your deck. Yeah. Right? Like maybe you're like, okay, I need to play this thing that has a basic land type over a gain land. Right. Right. Like, well, I could play two gain lands or I could play two triomes. You'd yeah. play the two triomes because that might help you get a castle in and you right. have the flexibility of a cycle, but mm-hmm. the basic land types in like older formats lets you fetch them as well. Right. But the fetch lands that we have currently, uh, Fable don't. Passage and Evolving Wilds don't let you get Ketria Triome. Yeah. Usually like, Almost always, the thought process behind which of the rare dual lands do I play in my standard deck is all of them. Yeah. And then you try to figure out what other lands you need. Mm-hmm. Like, Ketria Triome is a is kind of a special case. Like, maybe that's not just, like, a snap include in, like, your rule deck. I don't think it is. No. no. But uh, the pathway... And the temple are just a snap include in your two color deck. Right. And then usually then Fabled Passage is also like a snap include in your two color deck. Right. So you're starting from like, you know, you're starting at like 16 lands, right? At least four basics, probably yeah. six. So maybe 18 lands. So six basics, four Fabled Passages, 
and then four of each dual land in your color. Mm-hmm. And now, like, you're probably you done with all the last six spots or whatever. Yeah, but now, like, you don't play lands; you just play double face cards. Oh, that's your actually another good point. Yeah. So yep. in a normal in a normal standard, right? Yep. You'd get up to twenty four lands by playing, you know, some mixes a mix of basics and gain lands or whatever. But mm-hmm. now you're like, okay, I'm at eighteen. Well, now I'm gonna play four Kazandu Mammoths, four Shadow Skull Smashings. Now I have twenty six lands in my deck, mm-hmm. but I can't really flood out. Right. And Ever. I'll play like one of the. Kazandu's Fury and like two um Spikefield. Spikefield hazards. Now I have like twenty nine lands and again yeah. never miss my land drops in theory and right. never flood out. Yep. Yeah, that was actually a really good point that I hadn't thought of when I was building the episode. Yeah. So So we had a whole section on the uh state of the game. Yeah. We are at an hour 57. <laughs> so we will talk about Arena State of the Game next week. Yes. We will cut this down to a more digestible hour 40. <laughs> so digestible hour 40. So we will talk about that next time. Yep. But you see, you give us ideas and we talk about them. Yeah. And like, actually, when I had first read this topic, I didn't think that there was enough here to do a show on. So... I'm kind of glad that we talked about it in Discord and you changed my mind. Yeah. So I've been doing slides for class and I keep making the last slide TLDR. Yeah. (laughs) It's the last slide in all of my stuff instead of conclusion. So I think the TLDR for this is pretty sweeping, but it's it really depends on what your deck's trying to do. Yeah, that was kind of my answer like in Discord, but then I realized there was a little bit more to it than that. There is, but it's, it's, you know, like 50,000 foot view is what does my deck value or what does my deck enable or need to enable? Yeah. And that's what influences your card choices. But then there is all the other stuff of like, well, what's the metagame trying to do? Which of these cards counters that or plays into that? Mm-hmm. So, but with that, I think we have a show just because it's long. And your hand hurts. <laughs> my hand is hurting less. I think my body's just like accepting the fact that I'm an idiot. Well, so, that and you were distracted. I'm yeah. sure it'll hurt a lot worse in half an hour when you're not thinking about making a show anymore. Yeah. So if you would like to uh, tweet at us, uh, either show ideas or remedies for a burnt hand. Uh, you can get at us at Casual Tripod. If you want to send us pictures of you yourself picking up hot things out of an oven with no oven mitt, uh, you can shoot us a picture on Facebook at Casual Tryhard MTG. Uh, you can also drop us an email, show at CasualTryhardMTG.com. Uh, hit us up on our Discord. There's a link down in the description. There's a link on Twitter. There's a link on Facebook. If you can't find any of those links, shoot us an email get a hold of us however and we'll give you a link to our discord that's where this show came from it was a topic provided in discord so if there's anything that you want to hear about hit us up there there's also been some pretty good discussion in there lately so hop on over and add to the discussion 
Um, don't forget, if you're looking to pick up any singles, please use our TCG player affiliate link, tcg.casualtryhardmtg.com. Anything you purchase after following that link, we'll get a small sliver of to help keep the show rolling, pay our hosting fees and such. Uh, if you want to support us a little bit more directly, if you like the content that we're making, uh, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash casualtryhardmtg. Patrons get early access to our show notes. They usually go up the day before the show goes live. Uh, they also get access to our pre-show ramblings, which kind of cover anything and everything. Anything from what we're going to talk about on the show to how Brian burnt his hand before the show started or what happened at work today or anything in between. Don't forget to hook us up if you feel like supporting us that way. And with that, I think we have a show. Yes. Uh, I guess I will catch you very slowly and one-handedly on the internet. We'll catch you guys on the internet. Yeah, like, I totally can't type. (laughs) Like, I can't even bend my fingers. It's great.